Do you have a problem falling asleep, staying asleep, or are you restless in your sleep? Do you know that many illnesses unknowingly stem from your sleep and most doctors won't suspect sleep as the cause? Well, then buckle on up as you are about to hear from a sleep expert pioneer. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on the Motivation Show today practiced neurology from 1991 to 2016, where she had a busy general neurology practice and became fascinated with sleep and sleep disorders, which I am also fascinated. And that's why I'm excited today. Using her patients' observations about their sleep, she published two pivotal articles about the global struggle with worsening sleep and the possible causes and solutions. In 2016, she pivoted a little bit and retired. Heard that word pivot a lot today. And so she moved on to uh, from our office practice to have more time to teach. And she's really good at it. Uh, she currently divides her time between teaching the public about sleep in virtual coaching sessions and teaching other clinicians the right sleep method of sleep repair. Welcome to The Motivation Show, Dr. Stasha Gobanek. Hi, Eli. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm pretty excited because uh, I'm one of those guys in the statistical category that certainly could sleep a whole lot better. And my first question to you actually is how many people do you think actually have sleep issues? I, I think nobody knows the real answer to that, but I'm going to estimate that 80% of the U.S. has sleep issues, Ooh. Uh, much higher numbers than have been published because uh, insomnia, for instance, is pretty much ignored by medicine. If you were to see a sleep expert, they don't even want to touch you if you have sleep, have insomnia. And most of the children uh, born in the last two generations start with sleep issues and continue to have them. It's now the new normal. New normal. That's a scary sort of phrase there, huh? And it is. You know what I'm curious about, doctor, is, you know, I'll go to my primary physician with a whole host of sort of issues and sleep is not generally one of the uh, discussions that we ever have. And I probably would think that that probably is going on in most primary doctor's office. Why aren't primary doctors talking more about sleep and referring Good to sleep question. doctors? Yeah. So what happened to me was I have a regular neurology practice. Half of my practice was young, healthy females who had daily headaches. And one of those headache sufferers after my medicines didn't help her insisted that I do a sleep study. She was not overweight. She didn't look like what we've been taught to look for in sleep disorders. She had sleep apnea and she put on a CPAP device, which I still picture as a form of a torture device. It looks like it to headaches, me. Yeah, her <laughs> headaches went away. So, and that was back in 2005. So 
I spent five years between 2005 and uh, 2010 using what we had available, which was CPAP devices and sleeping pills. And up until the time that that change in my way of thinking about things, I had avoided sleeping pills because we're all told as doctors, you don't want to get into that. In fact, most of us don't ask, so we won't be asked for the sleeping pills. Mm. So the, the issue is how are, how are doctors taught about how disease occurs? So back to your question, why aren't we talking about sleep? It became obvious to me after five years of sleeping pills and CPAP that I saw things get better that I had no treatments for. And then if you shift your mind and think, gee, were humans here before doctors came? Well, yeah. Are all the other animals on the planet sleeping in the same exact way? Yeah. That means we're really self-assembling. We're self-assembling living beings. That's extraordinary. And we're self-repairing every night. That means if you've ever known anyone who lived to be 75 years old and really didn't go to the doctor because there's nothing wrong with them, there is a possibility that what we need to think about is, oh, all disease devolves from not sleeping well. And remember that we're in, a, in the last hundred years, we're in a special situation for, for humans. Our major killers for the last 500,000 years of humanoids, war or trauma, infectious diseases, and starving to death. Like every other animal, eating was the major occupation. Since we have now moved into a time, especially since World War II, where we are not starving to death, where many, many of the huge killers have actually been overcome. The infectious diseases that used to kill us have been overcome. COVID is a really good example of this is a relatively mild or moderate virus that has preyed on a population that has a weakened immune system. That's mm. my view. But yeah. it gives us an example of in the past, plague took out huge numbers of people. So we're now moved into a time where the diseases we go to the doctor for are not starving to death and not generally infectious diseases that are killing us. What we have is a huge population that has chronic illnesses that used to affect old people. They're not new diseases, they're old diseases. Heart failure, autoimmune disease, ADD, things that we see all the time in children now are things that used to affect us as we were in the phase where we were dying. So we might live for 75 years and then have 10 years of dying. Now we start dying at age two and we spend you know 50 years doing that. So sleep is affecting all other diseases in your estimation? In my view, it affects all other diseases. The wow. reason why I got there was as I started to treat my headache patients and to view them as though, well, gee, migraine is really a genetic disease. So we've moved so far forward in genetics that I can point to almost any of the neurologic illnesses that I see and say, these are the genetic mutations that underlie why you're presenting to me in that way. Well, if they're genetic diseases, how come I only have headaches now that I'm 35? I didn't have them when I was, I had that mutation when I popped out. Good question. And same thing for tremor, same thing for epilepsy, same thing for Parkinson's disease, same thing for some of the staggering illnesses. 
Those are all things where we've now clarified that there's this genetic mutation or these 100 genetic mutations for migraine or some of the other staggering disorders. Well, why do they wait until X age before they manifest? That suggests that originally we're able to handle that mutation and somehow make modifications. And oh, as I start to treat someone's sleep, if that disease goes away, I was really totally blown away by the fact that the CPAP device made her headaches go away. I mean, it challenged my whole way of thinking about it because I think of migraine as a chemical disease. It's, it's about turning on certain cells that are the pain cells of the head. There, are, there is beautiful biochemistry behind it. We have all these genetics, but does that mean when she puts on that torture device, all it's doing, it's not changing any chemicals. It's not a drug. So I've been trained in the same time frame where I would think of this disease gets this drug, but when none of the drugs work and she puts on this torture device, what does that mean? Could that mean that it's allowing her to get into deep sleep and stay there longer? And oh, by the way, her brain knows what chemical to make to shore up that genetic weakness that she had. And it's been doing it for thousands of years. Like it's so obvious, but we don't, we haven't looked at it that way. And it was because that torture device just does not have a placebo effect. You know, she's not gonna come back in and say, yeah, thanks for putting this thing on my head that I wear during the night. It's so peculiar, it's so unnatural. And yet so many of my patients got so much better. That just changed everything for me. Also, after she had sleep apnea, I started to do sleep studies and all these young, healthy females with daily headaches. And most of them didn't have sleep apnea. So all I know is the same thing that you know and everybody else has been trained. Oh, it's about the airway, fat neck, you know, you stop breathing. But then now I've got 500 sleep studies that just show they don't stop breathing. They just don't have any rapid eye movement sleep. Well, what's up with that? How could that be the airway? And how do we get into REM sleep anyway? That's kind of a brain issue. That's a neurology issue. How come nobody's writing about this? So at the time, it's not like I was trying to discover something. I was looking for the literature that said, why do all these 30-year-olds REM-related apnea, or why don't they get into REM? No one was writing about it. Yet everywhere around the world, every sleep study center in Brazil, in Germany, in Japan, in South Africa, Everybody who goes there, most of them have an abnormal sleep study. If you include the people that don't have enough deep sleep, they may not have sleep apnea, but if you include everyone who can't sleep while they're at the sleep study center, and you include everyone that feels tired, and when you look into the depth of their sleep study, you see that they don't have normal amounts of deep sleep where we heal, this means this is a global epidemic and really nobody's writing about those poor people who can't sleep or the ones that don't get into deep sleep. And that brings us all the way back to, this is really a neurology problem. This is not a pulmonologist problem. The sleep doctors right now are pulmonologists, many of them. And at the time they were the predominant people who were treating it. So I wanna ask you a question. A friend of mine is on one of those torture devices. As far as he's concerned, it's the best thing that ever happened to him because now he's sleeping better. But does he just not know that there's a better way around it? And he doesn't have to have that torture device on? Uh, should he be hunting no, for, it, a, for a different? It's a great thing. It's a great thing. And he feels enthusiastic about it because he felt so terrible when he didn't exactly. use it. Right. 
But what I would see in my patients, so I've got two groups at the very beginning of this using CPAP. I've got the people who I see on the weekends who've had a stroke. And I realize every single one of those has a sleep disorder and they all have abnormal sleep studies and the great majority have sleep apnea. So I have those people who I picture as being much more severely affected. By the time you have a stroke from sleep apnea, you've had sleep apnea for 30 years. So it's slowly developing over many years and then it gets to sleep apnea. And then I have a whole bunch of these patients who are young, healthy people who don't have all the other medical problems. And I'm looking at those two groups. And in the meantime, as we get towards five years into it, the sleeping pills are wearing off. And I still don't have an answer for what else to do for this person that has no REM. And, they, and these medicines we have don't really bring back REM. So that's a problem. I'm not really able to give them what they need. Why would we not have it? It's an important part of memory. It's mood. It's, and in the meantime, in the background, these people who've been using the CPAP devices for four or five years are coming back saying, you know what? I love my CPAP device. I can't really function without it. But you know what? In the first year, I was down to one medicine for hypertension. I was off all of my, my diabetes pills. My pain was better. I felt so much better. And now I'm into it, I'm five years into it and everything's creeping back. I still wear it every night because I can't really function without it but my diseases are creeping back. Mm. That suggests that we're doing something like a, a crutch. We're addressing what we saw, but there's another disease in the background that's continuing to progress. So many of the people who become really attached to their CPAP device know that they can't do anything without it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the whole answer. And my best, actually my best outcomes were in the sickest people who were on CPAP successfully. And then I added this other stuff I learned about that's about deficiency states in the background that have been there for 20 years that led to the sleep apnea. And you add that to the CPAP and the outcome is amazing because the CPAP is just addressing why we're getting, it's addressing we're getting too paralyzed in these certain phases and it's making our airway collapse. It's not just anatomic. But if you don't fix the physiology behind it, it continues to progress. And you take people off the uh, CPAP and, uh, and give them other uh, modalities and they'll be uh, even better off than, than, than they were in the CPAP? Yes. Or is it best to use the CPAP with the modalities? I always start using whatever you're using now. So if you love your CPAP, you use that. Because my experience was if, if I can't get the person sleeping, vitamins don't do jack by themselves. So we're going to get into how I stumbled in this vitamin stuff. But if the vitamins are added to our bloodstream and go up into the brain, but you never get into the phase where you use these building blocks to make repairs, there was no success. So the consistency in the background is I now have to convince people with insomnia that they're better off with the sleeping pill. I have to convince the ones that don't like their CPAP Maybe we should try a sleeping pill to make it easier for you to wear the CPAP because if you were somewhat successful with it, you will be doubly or triply more successful. If I can get you into deep sleep, no matter how I do it, with an oral appliance from a dentist, with changing your oral airway, every single bit of it is contributing to you getting into the deep sleep. And then the brain repairs itself. That's the part that we kind of missed in medicine. The brain is really designed 
to develop human beings. Think about what has to happen between a baby is born and becomes a 25-year-old. That's not doctors doing that. That's not a human being coming up with... Human beings get so self-impressed because they discover <laughs> stuff, okay? Yeah. The miracle is this thing that we see developing. That development has to have normal sleep to occur. So every single developmental disease that leads to autism, that leads to developmental delay in terms of achieving academics, all these things that we're seeing in kids now, they're all about not allowing the brain to get into and stay in deep sleep long enough. It has a timeline, it has to accomplish. Same thing for our nightly repair. We must repair every night or we fail. Once you start to see, this only makes sense to you as a doctor, once you see people get better, it's a theory before that, but when they come back and they don't have any pain anymore, and they're actually going to classes so they can start to work again after they've been on disability for 10 years, like getting back the goal and the energy to go back to work, once you've been on disability and you're still on disability is a miracle in my yeah. view. Yeah. I never saw that happen before. And now I start to get really good at thinking to myself, I don't care what it is. If it makes their sleep better, it's a move in the right direction. Then miracles really happen. Yeah. What percentage of people uh, actually, you know, have come to your office actually know they even definitely have a sleeping problem. Some sleeping problems are pretty obvious. You know, you know, you're waking up, you're, you're gasping for air. You know, you're waking up uh, three, four times in the middle of the night. Uh, then there are others that don't even realize they probably have a sleeping problem. Um, yeah, I, I was not very popular with my patients at first, frankly, because I got into this ahead of the big wave. Okay, it's not like I was the only person getting interested. Everybody was starting to get interested. But pretty quick, it was my view that every single person in my practice had a sleep disorder. I just didn't know it. I didn't know the right questions to ask, especially children. I would actually do sleep studies in a kid with epilepsy or in a kid with headaches. And I would look at their sleep study, it would be terrible. And you'd say, how's your sleep? And they all say, fine. And I realized they, they have no other experience. This is the only body they've ever been in. Then I would turn to mom and say, is it hard to get him up in the morning to go to school? Oh my God, yes, it's terrible. So over a series of years, what's having the sleep study to look at and realizing, oh, they don't even know they have abnormal sleep. So many, many of my patients who didn't, daily headache patients are suffering. They will let you do almost anything. So I didn't really have a hard time trying to convince them. I had a hard time convincing them that they would sleep any better at the sleep study center than they did already at home. Okay. Does somebody so have to go to a sleep study center or can they take home a uh, device? No, and they don't have to. At the time, that was really our only option. But now there are many insurance companies that are insisting on a home oximetry device that measures your oxygen at home before they'll do a supervised sleep study. And, and here's the problem. There's this little list of things that are now designated by the insurance company. So not only is the insurance company in a funny little box, they're not designed to think about humans. Yep. You think about, <laughs> Unfortunately. you know, bottom line, the little yeah. boxes and actuarial tables. And then there's the, what we've been taught, what we've taught each other as sleep doctors. There are these diagnoses. And if I want to make money as a sleep 
professional. I have to make these diagnoses. It doesn't have anything to do with what's wrong with my patient. Everybody who feels tired in the morning, who has to take pills, everybody who's sick, they all are not repairing well in sleep. Your first question was, how many of the people in my office knew that they had a sleep disorder? Right. One, I was not a primary sleep referral doctor. I, I never really put myself out there as a sleep doctor per se. I still, I would say I am a sleep professional because I've been thinking about this really heavily for 15 years and reading about it, but I haven't done a sleep fellowship. In retrospect, that allowed me to have a very open mind. I really thought about it in a totally different way. Nobody told me how to think about sleep disorders. I just went, well, if these people can't get into deep sleep and they feel terrible in the following ways, that probably means that getting into deep sleep is important. And if we can get them into deep sleep, they'll feel better. I know that I felt great when I was 25. Why don't they feel great? So there's a way of opening your mind to the possibility that we miss the boat, that doctors, because they're unconscious during sleep, and there's some basic stuff about this. We're all unconscious. So we left it to last, which is sad. Well, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, doctor, but you know, I've been to a doctor and their answer for my sleep issues was try some melatonin. Tell me yeah. your thoughts about that. The reason why- and what melatonin left, even is. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you about that. The reason why I left medicine was because I was not, I was not able to actually do what I wanted to do and get paid for it. So now I'm a sleep coach and I get paid cash money to talk all about sleep with any person who wants to talk about sleep. And I get to teach others how to open your mind to the possibility that sleep is the most important thing that we do, okay? Now, in the meantime, medicine over the last 30 years has moved in this very weird direction, which is all about pharmaceutical agents our original passion as caregivers is to take care of people, but the people who still have to take, try to take care of people, and I would claim that it's very difficult now to do your real work, they have to do it within these completely unrealistic parameters. So one, the insurance company will not cover and will yell at you. They run the show now. If I want to give anything mm -hmm. else, that's pitiful. Okay, so it is. melatonin is a hormone we make ourselves. And by the way, you have to have a good D level and you have to have good B vitamin levels in order to make melatonin. So melatonin happens to be available over the counter for various federal law reasons. And for most of my patients, it was a total waste of time. Like, Melatonin, are you kidding me? That's gonna do, that doesn't do jack. So <laughs> it turns out once you fix the chemistry a little bit more, melatonin can be really helpful. And that same patient that found six months ago it didn't work. So it's not it's not that it's not a player, it's that we have we have really betrayed our original contract with our patients. Our contract was you come to see me, you tell me what's wrong with you, and I try to help you. That is not the current contract. You're right, unfortunately. Yeah, the current contract is I come in because my back hurts and my doctor hands me this lab slip and then wants to put me on a statin and wants to give me this, that, and the other. And when I was in about five years into the sleep stuff, I began to realize that I would have a 40-year-old person come in on four pills, an antidepressant, an anti-reflux, 
some Zyrtec for their allergies, some Flonase. And I thought that they had a good doctor. I was just as immersed in this mindset that we were born to fall apart. And my job as a doctor is to recognize the symptoms of this kind of fall apart and give this pill. And this kind of fall, fall apart gets this pill. That is still the mindset of how we teach. That is still my colleagues, even my friends who are still in medicine, they still don't get this because until you've seen things reverse themselves without your drugs, because the person is sleeping better, you still really can't believe this. You know, it's interesting because patients, I think, uh, when they see that little prescription pad and they get that little prescription, somehow they think that they've gotten their money's worth instead of somebody saying, why don't you go out in the sun more, get more vitamin D. And uh, I know, according to your teachings, that vitamin D seems to have a, a pretty important role. Tell us about that. That is an excellent question right at this point. There are two people in the room. There's the doctor in the room and there's the patient in the room. One of my biggest struggle was as I got deeply into sleep, trying to convince the patient that the disease grows out of the abnormal sleep. One of the problems with that discussion off the bat is everybody knows about sleep apnea. So when you say sleep in the room and they haven't said anything about insomnia, they go, oh my God, she's going to send me for one of those terrible studies. And I'm going to get one of those torture devices. <laughs> or, the one of, or one of those torture devices. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. So they, that's the way the doctor's thinking. That's the way the patient is thinking. One of the hardest things for me to do as I got deeper into using the vitamins they were deficient in was to encourage the patient to think about this in a totally different way. That now my contract with them was not, I have the data, I'm the doctor, I'm the smart one, you're the stupid one who's supposed to follow what I tell you. Yeah. That paternalistic relationship doesn't work. So I now have a lot of clients who've taken a different tack. They don't want to take that tack. They want to take responsibility. They want to become informed. But there is still this inherent assumption that what was always a very class-driven paternalistic relationship that leads to doctors being encouraged to be arrogant about their information that still pervades medicine. We do it to each other. We do it to our patients. In the current modern day, any 18-year-old who wants to learn about their disease can learn more in two weeks than most doctors are gonna see because they have only one disease they wanna learn about. You could actually go to medical school and learn everything that I had to pay for because I had to pay for access to the library. You no longer have to do that. That means every single human being has the right and the method to learn how to be healthier. And we in medicine have to change the way we do it. We really do. Wouldn't that be That's nice? That's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And I commend you for that because I, I know what you mean. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of doctors just seem to want to have you just keep coming back over and over again. I, sometimes I ask a doctor, can you give me sort of a, a, a floor plan, you know, futuristic floor plan as, as like three steps ahead and they won't do it because they want me to come back on the call next time. And I'm like, I'm really confused here. But, you know, and then you like step after step. We'll take your melatonin and see how it works. And we'll talk in two weeks. 
Well, I don't know if that melatonin's really going to, just my instinct is that's not going to do a hell of a lot. Now I got to go back on a call just to take one more step. You got 19 steps. You're going to tell me one step at a time. That is very frustrating for a patient. And one of the things that's inherent in that is how do you write your contract with your client? Okay. So now I'm a coach and it took many, uh, several years of my business coach saying, what does your client need? How much time? When do they need to see you? You're the one that knows what they need to do. Set up your plan with their success in mind and say, here's what you're going to need to do. It took her a long time to convince me. And I said, well, they need to work with me for a year. We need to meet every six weeks. Once she said it and it went in, it was very simple. This is what they need to do. But my whole training was about what you just described. Okay, come back in three weeks or four. And then the patient who's doing well is more likely to come back. If you just failed with what they've done twice, you're not going to come back. Mm, and yeah. that's a bad thing for the doctor because the doctor doesn't get to have the feedback because it was really my patients being willing to come back and say, that stuff you told me to do last time, it was a loser. In fact, this is what happened to me. It was terrible. The fact that they were willing to come back and tell me that was huge. So currently, I do exactly what you have in mind. I say, it's going to take a year. We see each other every six weeks. Here's your responsibility. Here's my responsibility. I give you a year. You give me a year. Every time that charge shows up on your credit card, I want you to be reminded of the contract you signed and that you are paying attention to what we're doing together because you're the one that's going to sense whether it's better or not. That's a really different way to practice. And because I'm not practicing medicine, I actually do have a really clear idea of how long it's going to take them. And I say, look, when you work with me for a year, you're going to get better at first, and it won't take you a year to get better, thank God, but you'll get better, and then you'll get worse again. I guarantee you'll get worse again. And then what you'll get to see then is we change something, and you get better again right away, and you become a believer, and these building blocks are affecting my brain's ability to make the chemicals that allow me to sleep. So you get worse at least twice, and then you get to move things around and see that you got better. That really, what I want when you leave my program is you feel confident and competent to do this program on your own. That all you're gonna really need at the end is to do some D for the rest of your life. But to remember that these are the physical symptoms that result when my D is too low and my D is too high. So you're constantly responsible for making sure that you're listening to your body what it's telling you so any tips other than the general ones that most people you know if they know anything about sleep will probably already know about like blacking out your curtains or having a, your room a little bit cool any other thoughts oh i have a lot of other thoughts but one the stuff that's on my website is all the stuff that's not anywhere else okay so all of those sleep hygiene things and the melatonin and the stuff that's on everybody else's website is already out there if it yeah. hasn't helped you, then you need something else. And what I have is a really pretty complicated thought process. It's a, it's a way of approaching how our body heals itself. It's not a recipe for vitamins. It's really an approach that says, okay, here are the things that are deficient in almost everyone who has a sleep disorder, no matter what form it presents in, but each person is unique. Each person fails in their own unique way. And here are the things we can add back 
So there was a whole series of events that led to me finding this literature that showed vitamin D had receptors in the sleep switches that govern our ability to enter REM sleep. That means they're sitting there in the sleep switches for some reason. And oh, by the way, every single one of those young, healthy females with daily headache had a low vitamin D. So there was a very simple question. Could that mean that when I sleep on the beach in Mexico and I sleep much better when I'm out in the sun, could there be a vitamin D blood level that would lead to better sleep? And the answer is yes. And that we published, that was not hard to do. All you have to do is recognize that human beings can talk. They can come back and say, hey, you know what? I'm sleeping better. And we send them down and get a vitamin D level. I want to ask you a little bit about vitamin D because I studied a little bit about it. And I know that the old uh, criteria was um, if you're uh, over 30 in your vitamin D level, you were doing good. Then the new uh, criteria came out and said you need at least 50. Now I look at my last blood report, which I did right before I, I got on with you. And it showed actually, again, the same numbers of if you're over 30, you're fine. What's the truth? Very good question. There is no truth. It's all opinion. And that's a really important question. If you want to think about what does vitamin D do, if you only focus on bones, then that's all you're going to check. And it turns out that vitamin D does everything for us. It's everywhere in every animal. That means there's so much to learn about it that every single vitamin D expert, and I do not consider myself a vitamin D expert because I frankly don't think there are any on the planet. The biology of our planet is wrapped around being able to modify our fertility, our metabolism, and our sleep to what the season is. It has been that way for 500 million years. Since the dinosaurs, they would sleep longer in the winter. There was a chemical messenger that did that. This is so deep and is so complex, and medicine has understood so little of it that every single person who considers themselves a vitamin D expert has what they consider to be the right blood level. The most important part of that is from the beginning, I was really following vitamin D blood levels under the direction of a guy named John Cannell, who had a vitamin D council work website. So he was the first person in 2000, probably 2002, to actually make a website that, that guided lay people to testing their vitamin D blood levels and had whole sections for clinicians about how confusing the nomenclature was. All the, the actual incorrect dogma about vitamin D. He spent a lot of time going through the literature and sorting out. So I was using his website. His website has since changed, but he had really good information. And he was the one that encouraged clinicians to use vitamin D3 25-OH level and really kind of clarified. There's a huge number of Ds, which one to do? I, I see D25 hydroxy on my report. Is that yeah, not the best measurement? There's a huge complexity to that. We can get into it yeah. if you want, but ultimately the problem is that over the last 20 years, every person who felt better taking D has a physical example that they feel better and they go into the talk to their doctor and the doctor doesn't really have good consistent guidance, they have the same questions you do. Well, is under 30 bad and over 30 is okay? If over 30, if all of, here's the current setting in Canada, 
the doctors are told that they can do one vitamin D level a year. And they're also told, you know, everybody's got a low vitamin D. So why the hell would we even want to look at it? And oh, why are you coming to the doctor in the first place? Because you're sick. What if this would be a pivotal place if everybody's low and they're all sick? Maybe we should think about that, okay? So every single person, so when you read a recommendation that said over 50 is better, you got into some literature by a different vitamin D expert who had their own professional experience. And it's not based in current clinical trials, the clinical trials that are coming out today. I just reviewed 2020's clinical trials. Every single one I found, excepting one, were all fixed dose trials. That means we're gonna use vitamin D to cure this disease. The reason why we're doing those trials is the basic science underlying D. In the last 20 years, basically every chronic illness has been traced back to being linked to vitamin D in some way. Wow. That means when the basic scientist does it in a cell or they do it in an animal model, they publish their results and they say, obviously vitamin D is playing a role in this disease in humans. And there are 20,000, 30,000 articles in that in the last 20 years. There's been a huge wave. Then the next thing that happens is the ones that study humans. Okay, so my doctor could read that basic science, but my doctor is really in a very unique role. I'm supposed to take that basic science literature and translate it into what do I do for my patients sitting here? That means I want to see that the clinical trials that say this vitamin D will actually reverse diabetes. It's been shown in many different ways. How do I do this study? This is a hormone, okay? This is a hormone, not a vitamin. It was misnamed. That means if I were gonna say to you, Eli, I think your sleep problem is really related to thyroid. Why don't you just go down to the corner store, buy yourself some thyroid, take some of it and come back in a year and let me know how you're doing. That's really what we're doing with vitamin D. Even lay people know, well, wait a minute, you think it's related to thyroid. Like, are you gonna draw my blood? Are you gonna measure a level? Are you just gonna make that shit up? Are you crazy? Am I just gonna go down to this corner store and buy whatever I think I should have with thyroid? You're not gonna test my level again to see if this is the right dose for me. Even lay people know that hormones are followed by blood levels and they need to be adjusted based on your blood level. All of so that's not one size fits all. <laughs> no, that's what you're saying. It's dangerous, in fact. Yeah. Okay. So all of the clinical trials are set up as like I have one that I review in my lectures. That's a New England Journal of Medicine, very very reputable journal, published in 2018. Really nice abstract. Does all the statistical analysis on 25,000 people. Out of those 25,000 people, this is a study to give X amount of vitamin D to prevent cancer and heart disease, because there's so much other literature that suggests that vitamin D deficiency underlies those two. So they did it on a huge number of people. They did it over five years. Think of the money that that takes. They only did the first vitamin D level in 15,000. That means 10,000 of them, they didn't even bother to do a single vitamin D level. They just assumed everybody's was low. And then when you look a little deeper, they published it and said, no, it didn't. I, we gave 2,000 IUs of D to all these 25,000 people. 
didn't change anything. If you look a little deeper into the article, not only did they not do the first level in all of them, but they only did a second level in 1500. Wow. They never tried to control the level. This is a journal article that is typical of all the controlled trials. Therefore, your doctor sits in his chair having read that impressive journal article, but not, uh, not connecting the fact that this is a hormone. If he were to move into hormone mode, he would know immediately that this is not the way you can actually address whether this is gonna help my patients. Then you take one more step and say, all of these systems that we're showing that vitamin D is pivotal to repair, that is a trophic, a growth promoting hormone. It is pivotal in every single one of my organs doing the repairs. And you know, one more thing, those repairs are never made until you get into repair phase. You just don't repair while you're awake, you repair while you're asleep. That means if we don't focus on the fact that it really runs the sleep, I don't care what clinical trial you're gonna do, if the person is still walking around with a D level of 40, that does not allow them to get into deep sleep. Your amount of deep sleep repair is then limited. So you won't see the miracles that I see. And uh, is there a um, range of vitamin D level that most people should be on? So you've mixed two ideas there that I want to point out. We think of it as what dose should I take? Right. Okay? How many I use, right? Yes. Because that's what we're trained so we, to, you know, we're, that's yes, what we hear. Exactly. We don't know any better. Because we called it a vitamin, okay? Yeah. And it's, it's on the shelf and we, we, are, we are gifted and we are burdened with the concept of doing this on our own without help, okay? Right. And it turns out that every single person needs a different vitamin D dose to achieve a specific blood level. That means you do your blood level, you take some, and then you get a second blood level one month later. Now, it turns out that in every state in this country, and we are in a very special place because there are actually companies that allow us as lay people to do our vitamin D levels now in an accurate way for pretty cheap. So I can go and get my vitamin D level tested without my doctor's order in every state except New York, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. They have state laws against that, which is a pity. Yeah, so true. that means that every single lay person who goes in and picks up the vitamin D off the shelf needs to have a vitamin D level before they start and they need to take X amount, whatever they decide they're gonna take and then look at their vitamin D level again in a month. I have a whole workbook that's about this because it's complicated, it's not simple, but no. we have the tools that we need in order to be able to do it. And my experience has been the right blood level for better sleep in those who have a sleep disorder is 60 to 80. So it's even higher than that 50. But be careful as you get up around 80 because you will start to suffer. And it doesn't have anything to do with bones or calcium or hypercalcemia. It has to do with taking your sleep away. So if you play with this chemical, it is giving you life but it is dangerous at the same time. So you have to be very careful. So when you say 80 level, you're talking about, does that mean 8,000 IUs or? No. Uh, the oh, are you talking you about take, the actual, you're talking about the, the yeah, level, right. So one is you. the blood level. Yes, I got you. This is, this is <laughs> not, this is a common, common mindset because one, we're putting lay people in a place where they have to understand hormones that are complex. Every single hormone wants to stay in a tight little narrow band. 
It has all these negative feedbacks. It is a large part of learning medicine. Yeah. And we put lay people in a very difficult position, which they're used to saying, how many pills do I take? I mean, right. that's a practical one. Do I take one or two? And oh my God, there's a 10,000. What's that sounds like a lot, 10,000. Okay. And now it says block, you know, micrograms. So there are two issues where, how do I want my body? What place do I want my body to be in? That's a blood test. How do I get to that blood level? That's a different issue. And that's unique to each person. How many pills do I have to take before I arrive there? It's not just related to what that level was today. It turns out to be related to how long you've been deficient. Because if you think about D, when you take it, it goes into almost every cell in the body and it's used for all these different things. Yeah. That means while Eli didn't have enough to make every one of those repairs, his body is forming these little holes like Swiss cheese where the D was supposed to be doing its work. If that's a 30 year span, that's totally different than someone who's been deficient for five years. Yeah, it makes sense. So uh, we only have about five minutes left. And I want to ask you uh, two questions that are kind of one in the same question. They want to get into uh, your right sleep method uh, and how people can connect with you. And my question is, you know, is there an ideal time to go to sleep every night? Uh, I've heard this thing called circadian rhythm. And how long should it take us to actually go to sleep while we're in bed? So the, the new normal is everybody is screwed up, but there still is a baseline normal. And that was we all got tired in around 9.30 or 10 and went to bed and fell asleep and then woke up at 6 or 7. Hard to do in a city like New York City, the, the city that never no, sleeps, right? <laughs> no, that's a really good question. Most of the patients are, and clients have been trained that the reason why our sleep is so disrupted is because of noise and light. But that's not true. And the way I know that's not true is I have patients who come back who are now falling asleep at 10 and waking up at 6. And when they wake up at six, they recognize their husband is snoring just as loud as he always was, but they slept through it. So there are people that I, that I actually have intervened where they're sleeping in New York City and the dump trucks come through or the sirens come through and they sleep through it and they say, you know what? My wife said that there were like three sirens last night that woke her up or there was this big storm. They stay asleep. Wow. How? How do they stay asleep? They have the proper chemistry. You have to think about it in a slightly different way. We have always been animals that slept outside under a tree. We were little tribal weak animals yeah, right. that slept on the ground. We hoped that we had like sheep uh, sleeping with us because they warmed us. That means that we actually had to be able to sleep well to be able to actually exist on the planet in these terrible environments that currently we would think oh my god camp out this is worse than camping are you kidding you want me to lay on the ground we wouldn't be here if we weren't able to do that Good we point. have the most luxurious environments of any animal has ever had yet our sleep is terrible that's the way to think about it that means there's something wrong in the background and that is, we went indoors. In the 80s, we started to go indoors. So tell us about Right Sleep Method of Sleep Repair and how people can get in touch with you. Right Sleep is a program that is not just about vitamin D. Vitamin D by itself can really hurt you. Vitamin D is very importantly linked to the bugs that live in our belly. So not only do we make vitamin D on our skin or take a supplement, 
We are supplying the bugs that live in our belly. The thing that's really made us sick is not the D alone. Everybody who has a medical problem, it's not from starving to death or war or infectious disease, has a duo of problems. Their D is low and their microbiome has deserted them. So the four phyla of healthy, helpful, health-promoting bacteria have gone. When you lost that organ of your body, everything went haywire. So the last 40 years are not just about D being low. Their D are low, the D is low, the microbiome is gone. That means you must bring back the microbiome and probiotics do not do it. It's really a matter- I was gonna ask you about that because we always hear probiotics, oh, probiotics, the solution worthless. to everything. They're worthless. It's not about the bacteria supplying the bacteria. It's about supplying the bacterial growth factors that these four phyla, who are the guys that have actually been there, our little army that kill other bugs. We are actually more like pig pen in the Charles Schultz cartoon. We have these clouds of viruses, fungus, and bacteria that coat us like a little cloud inside and outside. They make antibiotics. Antibiotics mean killing living things, antibiotics. The antibiotics that we as humans use, we stole from the bacteria. Penicillin was made by a bacteria. These bugs make chemicals that fight off viruses. They fight off fungus that we don't want. They fight off other bacteria. That means getting them to come back really means giving them the eight B vitamins. So there's a second piece that's really important to learn, which is the growth factors for the bugs that we need are eight B vitamins and vitamin D. That's what they want. They hang out together as a foursome because they trade these Bs. So B and D, huh? That combo I mean, is- I kind of uh... have to know a bit more about them because you can't just start taking them and keep taking them. So the reason why there's a program and there's a workbook is it teaches you the things you need to know about this. You take it for a period, period of time and then you stop. My website is Dr. Gomenak, D-R, no period, D-R Gomenak, G-O-M-I-N-A-K.com. And most of my website is the why. I'm very invested in the why. I'm not interested in making statements. Many of the statements I put on there are things that I were derived from seeing my patients do these weird things that weren't explained and finding the science behind that. So the why is on the website, the how is in the workbook, but I really encourage anyone who wants to take vitamin D or do any of this, you need to learn as much as you can because it's not simple, it's a little bit detailed and it's worth learning about. Well, for those listening today, uh, Dr. Gomenik is a one of a kind because I can tell you, I've uh, actually talked to a number of people who specialize in sleep and they basically all have the same philosophy. This is a very refreshing philosophy, which I'm gonna actually look uh, much further into. Uh, I really appreciate what you are doing, Dr. Gomenik, and thank you for being on our show today. Thank you for inviting me, Eli. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.